Niels Hoag is a lawyer, writer, and teacher with a doctorate in theology and an appointment with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. His new book is Politics, Law, and Disorder in the Garden of Eden, The Quest for Identity. That's our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Hoag. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for having me. So, the Garden of Eden, with this innocent Adam and Eve, it does have a politics of some kind. Is this because of the presence of the serpent? Well, politics starts wherever there's an authority, and there's people subject to that authority. And yes, uh, the serpent, who obviously we're not exactly sure whether he's the alter ego, uh, an imitation or uh, a representative or a Satan in another guise, but whatever the case, um, Satan, uh, Lucifer, is vicariously responsible for the actions of the serpent. So yes, you have that, you have that situation. And, um, and of course, Satan's deep agenda is to take the place of the creator himself. Um, since he was kicked out of heaven for his rebellion, for his pride, he has tried to usurp the deity in the highest strategies of, of heaven. And he uses to do this, he uses his useful agents. Uh, in this case, the uh, Adam and Eve, the first couple. Uh, and until their arrival, obviously, Satan was the pinnacle of creation. He was the most beautiful thing that God had created. Now, with the arrival of Adam and Eve, they are the pinnacle of creation. And this drove him even further to distraction. So uh, he had this... He's got this multi-faceted agenda to destroy anything that connects to God, to, to deprive God of the glory that is due to him. He is the one who wants to be worshipped. So that is the start of this whole thing. This is the, the battle, the eternal battle that will last until the end of time between darkness and light. And Adam and Eve is just the beginning of this battle and we see that manifest through the ages through the scriptures and into the uh, present era uh, we see that also uh, manifest not only in identity politics happening in the western world today but we see it um, in a desperate struggle of of israel against against uh, jihadist uh, is islam islamism uh, which again is a religious thing you know, it was uh, Richard John Newhouse who said that um, underlying culture is religion and underlying uh, politics is culture. And of course, politics can lead to war or peace. And, but behind all that is religion. And religion, I should rather say spirituality, is Judeo-Christianity faced with the wiles of the serpent. Uh, you mentioned something a moment ago. I, I was actually going to follow up about that. You have a short discussion of this question of whether Satan really enters into the serpent or the serpent is simply acting as Satan's agent. Is that an important debate among theologians? And, and maybe, maybe what are the stakes of that? What, what difference does, does it make any difference, really? I don't, I don't think so at all. I, I think the net effect is the same because, as I said, um, whatever the case, uh, Satan is vicariously responsible for his, for his servant. Now, uh, the analogy we can use to try and get some understanding of this 
of this point is that of Judas Iscariot, who he was offered the bread at the Last Supper, and only when he took the bread, acknowledging his culpability to come, did Satan enter him. So it's the, it's the same thing. Um, maybe sir, uh, the serpent was a willing was a willing agent and Satan entered him. And we see the same thing with Adam and Eve when they participated of the fruit. Nothing happened. Satan hadn't entered them until they ate the fruit. Then evil entered them. The same thing. There are, twice Paul talks about the events and characters of the past are there as examples for us. And so we see that example manifest again in uh, Judas Iscariot. So uh, to answer your question directly, I don't think it's a particularly pertinent issue. The thing is, Satan and, um, and the serpent can be identified as one. Got it. You mentioned that Satan's really motivated by feeling displaced, right, as the highest creatures there in, in, right. in the garden. Is, is our certainty of Adam and Eve's uh, eminence there really due to the fact that they are created in God's image and that that really irks Satan into this lethal resentment is is it they're in it's not just say of greater powers greater greater intelligence greater capacity than the others in the garden but they this thing qualitatively being made in God's image qualitatively sets them apart. Is that correct? Oh, well, they were, that's correct. They were uh, sui generis. They were one of a kind, something new. And I think, I, think, I think in some way, Satan was probably delighted that they'd arrived because now he could attack the creator through, through lesser beings because he had no success attacking uh, the creator himself, obviously. He was cast out of heaven, but now he's got... Now he can attack the, the disciples, the followers, the lovers of God. And he wants people to be lovers of himself, not lovers of the true God. And that's why he's so incredibly clever, because these false religions that come along, many of them are very close to, to the true faith, which is a romance uh, with, the, with the living God. For example, um, I used to be in the Hare Krishna movement before I was radically saved. And the type of hmm. yoga that one practices there is called bhakti yoga, which means love and devotion of God. So you see, that's and, and a similar thing we have with Islam and we have with uh, Judeo-Christianity. You know, they're both monotheistic. So, so there's a stark um, dichotomy between the two, which one is correct. So... Satan wants to get as close as possible to the truth so he can distract people from the truth and so he can deprive uh, the creator of uh, a people for his name to worship him. You know, when you said a moment ago that the, the entry of Adam and Eve, the creation of them, almost pleases Satan because it, it gives them an, an avenue of, of revenge. And, and I, I, I had to think of the debate in Paradise Lost between the fallen mm. angels, what do we do? What do we do? We can't beat God. He's showing us. Maybe we should. Maybe we should. We should say we're sorry. Maybe we should. And 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 then uh, uh, Satan says, "Wait a minute. I got. I got another way. There are these these two little creatures. God, it, it did. 
maybe I should say, how influential is Milton's version of the garden in Western Western culture today? I, I, I can't help being having a Miltonic filter when when i think of of the fall it, it's just, it's it's that strong for for me uh, is that a common common thing <clears throat> i think the reference to the great writers poets and literature of a bygone era don't have much influence anymore <laughs> or not as much as they used to and this is a great tragedy and <laughs> you'll probably find people of our vintage are probably among the last generation that really value that, values that kind of uh, literature. And, you know, I can't remember when I last spoke to somebody who, who, who mentioned Milton. I have a very good friend of mine who's a professor of English literature. He's retired. He's elderly now. And, of course, he's a Milton scholar as well, and he loves Milton. But I have to say, I, I, I read those kind of books and... I, I did major in English literature as well at some stage, and uh, I, I, just, I just love it. But I've, I've got to bear in mind that my text is the Bible, and those are just interesting sidelines. And when you look at the last uh, few lines of how Milton romantically describes the odyssey of Adam and Eve, how when they leave Eden, how he romantically talks about their journey into the unknown. Well, it, it was, I think, uh, more dramatic than that. And, and he was exercising poetic license. And the thing is, when we read these kind of works, unless we have a good grasp of the scriptures, <laughs> we might go off at a bit of a tangent. So yes, I, I do separate the two scriptures of scriptures, never the twain shall meet, but I still <laughs> value the, the great books. I value Chesterton, I value... I value C.S. Lewis, and you can read the screw tape letters. The thing is, you can't take it literally. And yes, do they give us a good insight? I'm sure there's some elements in there that are true. To what extent, we don't know. But I, I think that we can use them just as interesting um, inter interesting literature and, and to, to enrich our lives yeah. Yeah. more than... More than um, in competition with the scriptures, not that you said that. <laughs> okay, back, back to the mm. theology. You, you bring up an interesting point. Adam and Eve retain that image of God even after their disobedience. Why, why isn't it gone? You, you blew it. You're done. You're not in my image anymore. Goodbye. What, what do we say there? Well, because God can't, doesn't change his mind. You know, he made them in, in, in his own image, and we must remember that when he made them in his own image, he is talking about the impartation of his divine attributes. He breathed life into Adam. And that included many things like his holiness, his laws, his justice, his capacity for love, his wisdom, his, his cognitive abilities. And we see all these things coming out. And I think one of the most important things that were imparted to Adam and Eve through the breath of God was the natural law. The natural law from which Thomas Aquinas uh, developed a, a jurisprudence. Um, and of course, Aristotle later came up with his own more humanist version of natural law. So 
natural law is so important because humankind, even though they may reject the Creator and reject His Redeemer, they are accountable in terms of the natural law. And natural law is the foundation of Judeo-Christianity. And Judeo-Christianity is the founder, foundation of our uh, Western civilization, of our culture, and stuff like that. And, of course, of our legal system, the common law, the, the civil laws, um, all those. And, of course, of our morality and our ethical paradigms, all emanate from natural law. So, that natural law is, is written in their hearts. With his, with his creation. God can't create Adam and Eve without giving them natural law as part of his, part of his being. So, uh, how, can they, how can they disobey? Well, you see, yeah, it's, it's quite simple because in his grace, God gave them the capacity for f free will, which includes, which includes the ability of contrary choice. They can, God gave them something that he does, himself, does not himself possess. He can't go against himself. He can't go against his holiness. He can't go against his, his, um, his, well, his holiness. But Adam and Eve can go against the love of God. They can, go, they can take a contrary position. And that's exactly what they did. When we, when we read how Eve was deceived by the serpent, there were three things that come to mind. Firstly, she said, Hmm, that looks pretty good to eat. Oh, and it was attractive. It was attractive to her eyes. And thirdly, it was good for wisdom. And that is where the whole problem leading to eventually to identity politics comes in, is wisdom through the conduit of uh, Gnosticism in its various disguises. Hmm, we're, we're going we're gonna to get to that. Let me, let me, let me just a, a couple questions first. You know it actually that if... Adam had not received the natural law, then he couldn't be guilty. He couldn't. He, he, well, we we right. couldn't blame them for disobedience. It's like when animals do something. Well, you know, maybe, maybe some animals feel guilt. <laughs> my, my dog would feel mm -hmm. guilt. Feels guilt. But uh -huh. uh, we need that natural law in order to be to the, the contrary choice, the, the the will, in order for us to be moral beings, right? Well, that's right. That's where we get our innatism in our innate conscience from is the natural law. Um, um, like uh, Aristotle and John Locke and, and a lot of these guys were talking about tabula rasa, blank slate. No, human, humankind does not have a blank slate. It has a, has a deep conscience of the natural law. And together with law comes justice. But in the grace of God, he couples justice to mercy. And so we read when, when, when uh, uh, Jesus came to earth, he came full of grace and truth. Grace coming first. Grace to temper the truth, the law. So yes, natural law is there. Even for tribes that have never heard the gospel, they have an innate conscience arising from the natural law. And of course, uh, if we want to know what the natural law is, then we have to look at the law of Moses, the... the um, the moral laws that were handed down to Moses, I'm not talking about the ceremonial or the civil laws for the nation of Israel. We're looking at the Mosaic codes, the moral Mosaic codes, mainly the uh, Ten Commandments and so on, which were later uh, redacted, were later incorporated in the law of Christ. 
which which are mentioned in there, uh, which we talk about in uh, Galatians and in Romans and Corinthians, the law of Christ. So there's no excuse. You you, you actually suggest at one point you bring up, you start relating this to to contemporary affairs when you suggest that the disobedience uh, was due to quote their naive Adam and Eve's naive idea of a humanist social justice. What, what do you mean by that? Well, when you reject the restrictions of the Creator, when you reject the Creator and you reject everything to do with Him, that is an um, affirmation of one's humanism. And once you have the humanism, then you can, you can take it from there. That, that is the, when they rejected uh, the doctrines and things of God, that gave rise to secular humanism. Secular meaning the non-necessity of God. That's the way, a simple way I like to do it. Humanist with a focus on the human, not on God. So human, secular humanism, of course, is an instance of practical atheism. You're denying the existence of God. And once you, once practical Atheism has arisen. It's a short step to paganism, to spiritual and religious paradigms and structures outside of the true um, romantic relationship because Christianity is, there's nothing religious about it. And as we can see in the garden, as we can see in the relationship of Christ with his disciples, as we can see uh, in many instances of God walking with them in the garden and also being present in the in the eternal order it's a natural organic relationship when jesus comes when 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 christ arrives what is, does he bring anything new to natural law or is he just you know straightening us out reactivating the natural law within this and getting us getting us right. Is there anything new though that he adds to the natural law? You're talking about the second advent in the eternal order. Yes. Well, there's no need for law. There's there's his presence. He is the word of God, and in the and being the word of God, he incorporates all the laws, the grace, the holiness, everything. Um that pertains to God, all the characteristics, all the attributes of God is, is him. And only those, because only those who are with him in the eternal order, whose names are written in the book of life. I mean, these are hard things, but whether we like them or not, they are there. You know, we can disagree as much as we like. Well, it's not going to change. It's not going to change. These are hard topics and hard doctrines. And those who find themselves in the eternal order in the presence of God, well, there won't be a need for law because he is there. His presence is there. We will act naturally because we will be fully sanctified. Until that time, we are not fully sanctified. We are in the process. Our status is one of full sanctification, is one of righteousness. But it's, we're still undergoing the process of sanctification until we enter into his presence because nothing unholy can enter into his presence. So we will be perfectly holy in every way, and so there will be no need for any natural law. Hmm. Back to the garden, the bare fact of a heterosexual couple in the garden, does that 
establish heterosexuality as in accord with the natural law. Simply, there it is, and this is this is a model. This is this this exemplifies the natural law of of men and women. Can we take that inference? That's that's correct. Um, whether we like it or not, it's the word of God. He created binary genders too, and there is no third gender. Uh, that's and whether one wants to change, have a metamorphosis of one's gender into another synthetic gender or self-identification is, is not the point. They are, the template is of two. Otherwise, they would not be able to procreate to create a family, family unit, and a family unit wouldn't be able to create a society, and the society wouldn't be able to create a people for God. And um, I, I feel terribly pained uh, at people who have gender confusion. I, I think it's one of the, the saddest, most horrific things anybody could ever experience and my heart bleeds for them and often when I think of them I'm in tears of people with this confusion uh, because they've been, they've been deceived. Um, and there are only those two and the irony is that everybody who promotes uh, manifest uh, um, uh, multifaceted genders are themselves a product of binary gender parents. So, of all the people born on earth, of the eight billion people on earth, all of them have parents who have binary genders. So it's a it's a it's a deception. It's a artifice from from the from the dark side to confuse young minds. It's an attack on the on the innocent of the vulnerable people. Um, it's a demonic attack upon them. A spiritual delusion. And therefore, the weapons we use are first and foremost love. Second of all, the word of God, coupled to the word of God. And I think deep love and compassion and concern for people who are struggling with their sexuality. I, th I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's too devastating for words. Um, uh, often uh, I tell my wife, I, I can't speak about this. And I can't speak about abortion and I can't speak about... Uh, gender dysphoria and things like that, but I have to. And uh, uh, I have a deep compassion for those people. And that's why I'm writing this, because hopefully somebody will read it and say, okay, well, this guy's he's a straight shooter. He tells it as it is. And sometimes we need to do that. And this is particularly aimed at, at the leaders of our churches and the leaders in society saying, you can moralize this any way you like, but it's not the word of God. You can, because making something legal does not make it legitimate. Legitimacy comes from the word of God. Those are two separate things. Does the serpent twist, undermine not only the relation of man and God, but also that of man and woman? Well, that's right, because you see, when he set out to destroy this, it was, it's a tripartite relationship. It's got horizontal and vertical implications. And he wanted to destroy all that. And he succeeded not in destroying it, but in disrupting it. He disrupted it so that the theocracy that God had planned for the garden um, ended up uh, being disrupted and having to expel the two people who he had ordained to create a society. And ever since that time, uh, humankind has been trying to re-establish an identity of sorts to capture their lost imago Dei. Although 
It's been corrupted. It is still inherent in human beings. So we see that even after the flood, it was still, it wasn't lost. It was still there. And when, when people are born again, when they come to, come to faith in the Messiah, in Jesus of Nazareth, their, their corrupted image of God, their conception of it is restored in fullness. Their spirits are made anew. So yes, it's never gone away. It's been attenuated. It's been, it's been suppressed, uh, but it's always there. Yeah. God yeah. made us in his image. That's, that doesn't change. And it doesn't change irrespective of the kind of gender we try and identify with or to create. We are still made in the image of God and God loves us. He loves us thoroughly. And that is why it's so important that we understand that this relationship with God is not a religion. It's It's a relationship of love. It's a marriage. It's a marriage. We are married to him. We are the bride of Christ. And so... Uh, God loves us passionately from his heart. It's not a purely academic idea. In in John 3, uh, God so loved the world. Well, it's not just a good idea. It is a good idea, but it's more than a good idea. He loved us from his heart. It's It's a love of passion. We're in a passionate relationship with God, and that is what we we need to emphasize. The the sort of demise of Christendom in many ways. Um the demise of Christianity is becoming, it comes through the demise of Christendom, which is not a bad thing in some way because it emphasizes the romantic relationship, the organic interpersonal relationship rather than a comfortable momentum uh, of Christendom to, to bring people into the kingdom. Hmm. You, you, you note, uh, just an, uh, another question on, on, the, on the fall, that you know, some say Adam and Eve, they love the thrill of the, the forbidden, right? The, the, there, there's there's, there's some, some, some kind of joy in, in, in naughtiness. Uh, but they were also drawn to the idea of independence, right? A freedom, pure and, and simple. Well, where do you come down on, on those motivations? Well, I think, I think they... Uh, freedom is a adjunct uh, to the to wisdom because they sought Eve sought wisdom Adam just went along with it because he was weak and he he wasn't a protector of his wife they went along with this independence um, because they wanted to do their own thing and that the power of contrary choice was given to them they they had every right to choose that but with every choice comes consequences and the consequences were horrific and so they wanted to explore themselves and to establish their own uh, future, their own identity outside of God. They wanted to experiment. They were searching. And, and humankind hasn't stopped searching. When they came out of the garden, humankind hasn't stopped searching. We all have some deep spiritual need in us. Uh, the same thing happened to me when I, when I was at uni. Um, I met the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, a guy called Swami uh, Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada when he came out to South Africa in the early 70s. And I had, well, I don't know what attracted me to this, but I had this deep spiritual uh, search, this need, which eventually led to my salvation. And humankind has something, they have something desperate within them that needs to be filled. And so they will always search. 
even if they have to create their own uh, spiritual paradigm. We have lots on, on the tree of life, lots on the tree of knowledge, but what, what about that fig tree? What's going on with that? Well, the, the Bible doesn't speak much about the fig tree. It talks about the fig leaves. And uh, my take on it is that the <laughs> tree of life is a fig tree because Adam and Eve tried to reinstate their righteous state by applying the fig leaves to themselves. And also we talk in the eschaton, um, when, when the time of, times of the end are arriving and Zechariah and uh, Micah and other scriptures talking about every man and his fig tree. And we also see Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree. So in all probability, I don't think it's, it's all that important. <laughs> uh, it's, it's more interesting than anything else uh, if it's a fig tree. Uh, I know the apple is, is, is the fruit supposed to be an apple in uh, popular tradition. Um, and the fact remains that uh, we're talking about a, a dry area in the, in, the, in the Middle East and towards uh, Central Asia, and the fruits of the desert are obviously, you know, uh, grapes, lead to raisins, figs, uh, pomegranates, um, and palm and date palms. And also Central Asia is the origin of apples, so it could have been an apple at the time. Okay. <laughs> the book is... Politics, Law, and Disorder in the Garden of Eden, The Quest for Identity. Dr. Hag, Dr. Hogue, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Lovely chatting.